Let's reopen our Bibles to the little epistle of Jude. The words are few in this little epistle. But when it says to them that are sanctified by God the Father, we not only have the liberty, but we have the duty to go find out what the rest of the Bible teaches about sanctification by God the Father, since Jude is assuming that you understand that already. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, which is one of the rules internal to the Bible of how to study the Bible, we compare the doctrine of sanctification. We found out what we did. That God the Father chose us to it before the world began. Jesus Christ secured it for us on the cross of Calvary. The Holy Spirit applies it to us individually and personally. And we shall be made completely holy when we're glorified with God in heaven. We are then called to live holy lives. But the point Jude was making is that we are sanctified by God the Father, meaning His choice to make us His holy sons, that we can live with Him forever. Then we had the words, preserved in Jesus Christ. And we mentioned a number of the verses that we go to to know that Jesus Christ came to lay down His life to secure eternal life for a very specific number of people that God had given Him, and He would lose none of them. And their preservation is not dependent on their faithfulness, but His faithfulness. Their righteousness is not their own, but His. Uh, We mentioned a man like Samson. Samson had a severe problem with Philistine prostitutes. He died in suicide at the end of his life. He's in heaven because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us so. We do not pattern our lives after Samson. We want to pattern our lives after Joseph. Because Joseph withstood Mrs. Potiphar when he was in the land of Egypt and did not live an unholy life like Samson did. We see Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot were both chosen to sanctification by God the Father before the world began. Jesus Christ laid down his life to perfect both of them. They were both born again during their lifetimes to give them a new man. And they're both going to be glorified in heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ raises their bodies. But while they were here on earth, they lived very differently. Lot was a compromiser, pitched his tent toward Sodom, ended up living in Sodom, sending his his children to the public school system in Sodom, marrying the sons of Sodom with three of his daughters, leaving his wife so carnally minded she couldn't leave the city when the angels were trying to save her life. He ended up in a cave committing incest with two of his daughters and creating two of the enemies of the nation of Israel. That's Lot. But Lot's in heaven. Abraham was the father of the faithful, was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans, went on a 500-mile trip where he didn't know where he was going, ended up in Canaan, never owned a single square foot of ground to put his foot on, and was a follower of God and worshipped God, and he walked with God. Both men end up in heaven. Only one man lived a holy and righteous life. Lot was a righteous man because he had a new man within him that Second Peter chapter 2, which I hope you read last night, said that new man within him was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. As he watched the lifestyle of the people in Sodom, it tore him up, but he didn't have the courage to be a godly father. He wasn't like Abraham. Abraham, it is said of him in Genesis 18:19, God knew that he would command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. But Lot didn't do that. The reason I give you these examples, our preservation is not based on our performance. Our preservation is based on the ability and the performance of God. 
Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling is what I want you to remember that's going to come later in the epistle of Jude. Now there are people, this is a real Arminian. A consistent Arminian knows nothing of grace. They think that you become one of God's by something you do, and they think you can unbecome one of God's by something you do. Now that's a consistent Arminian, consistently ignorant of the Bible. They think that you become God's by conditional election. That if you'll invite Jesus into your heart, then all of a sudden you become God's elect. Your name is written in the book of life. But if you're ever a bad boy and you die without confessing your sins, then your name gets blotted out of the book of life and you go to hell. What a horrible way to live and what a doctrine contrary to the Bible. Now let me prove it to you with an example. First of all, you should already know that. You should already know that that is not how salvation occurs and that's not how salvation ends. Salvation occurs by the purpose of God that will never be disappointed in the salvation of those that He gave, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it ends with Jesus Christ delivering all the children that God gave Him back to God the Father, according to Hebrews 2.13. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is heresy to believe that you can lose your salvation. Total heresy. That's a disgrace. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will lose none of them. Who are you going to believe? Jesus saying, I shall lose none of them? Or someone says that some shall be lost? Who are you going to believe? It's blasphemy. I want to show you. There are people that say, well, every one of God's truly elect will confess their sins before they die. So that they get their name back in the book of life for the 13,979th time. Because it's blotted out every time they sin. And it's put back in every time they confess their sins. Oh, What a way to live. I thank God that I'm in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm in the hand of the Father and no man can pluck me out of that hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord and I was given that by being chosen in Him before the world began. At the church of Corinth, many died in their sins and went to heaven. Because it is not our faithfulness that preserves us in Christ Jesus. It's God's faithfulness and Christ's faithfulness that preserves us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. He that eateth, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, talking about the Corinthian church and the way they abused the Lord's Supper. They had turned it into a drunken orgy. The poor in the church weren't even allowed to get near the tables. They went home hungry. The others went home drunken. And the Apostle Paul corrects that horrible abuse of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 down through 34. He told them, if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together for condemnation. And he, he explained the purpose of the Lord's Supper to examine ourselves and to just look at those elements as memorializing the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. But that's not my point now. We're not having the Lord's Supper today. I want you to look at verse 29. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What kind of damnation? What does the word damnation mean? It means condemnation. It means judgment. It means punishment. And the damnation is described for us in the next verse. Verse 30. For this cause, many of you saved Corinthians are going to hell... Because you didn't confess your sins about abusing the Lord's Supper. No, it doesn't say that. 
It says in verse 29, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Well, Paul, what is this damnation that you're saying comes upon men for not discerning the Lord's body? Verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There is nothing there about hell. There is nothing there about the lake of fire. There is nothing there about having your name blotted out of the book of life. There is just many are weak, many are sick, and many sleep. Meaning, they had died prematurely because they were not discerning the Lord's body in the Lord's Supper. And they were making such a mockery of it that the Lord just took them out early, like He took Ananias and Sapphira out early in Acts chapter 5. For lying to the Holy Ghost about the amount of the gift that they gave to the church. Verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If you would examine yourself, like verse 28 tells you in this text, if you would confess your sins, and if you would discern the Lord's body, then the Lord wouldn't judge you with sickness, with weakness, and with premature death. Watch. Verse 32. But when we are judged, when we are damned, when we are punished, verse 32, but when we are judged... We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. See, there is no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. And there was no eternal condemnation upon these Corinthian saints. They were chastened by the Lord. And sometimes chastening can be taking us out of this world early. Like it was them. Like it was Ananias and Sapphira. There is no reason to be, like it was Samson. Samson didn't live to a ripe old age. This is the Word of God. This is what the Bible teaches. Can a person die in their sins and go to heaven? Absolutely. When they're cut off by the chastening hand of God. And what does that chastening mean? That God loves them. God loves them and cuts them off early for their foolishness, or He gives them weakness, or He gives them sickness for their foolishness and their sins, because He is showing His love toward them so that they will not be condemned with the world. The distinction there is no condemnation with the wicked, but there is a physical damnation that is of this life where you are weak or sick or you die prematurely. I hope you can see it because there it is as big as day. There's a church that had many members that were falling over dead being put in the church cemetery that went straight to heaven. But the reason they were falling over early and the reason they were sick and the reason they were weak is because they were not discerning the Lord's body and the Lord was chastening them with severe measures. Let's go back to our little epistle of Jude. We want to thoroughly understand these phrases. Sanctified by God the Father. We were made holy by the choice of God through Jesus Christ, applied by the Spirit, and we shall be made fully holy in that great day when we are glorified with Him in heaven. Then we are preserved in Jesus Christ. And we saw that. It began with us being chosen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that obeyed for us. Righteousness is not by our obedience, and you don't add anything to His. For by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. By the disobedience of one, many became sinners. Adam. That is the, that is the doctrine of representation. Acts, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. By one man's disobedience, many became sinners. Adam held a position of federal headship and representation for the human race. 
When he sinned, all of us sinned in him. It didn't matter whether you sinned after the, the similitude of Adam's transgression or not. All men died between Adam and Moses. Right. Romans five twelve through 14 tells us that. That from Adam to Moses, death reigned. And men died from Adam to Moses, even though they had not sinned in the same way that Adam sinned. Because Adam's sin was applied to them, and in the same way Jesus Christ's obedience is applied to us. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This is Romans 5.19. One man's disobedience made many sinners. That is the doctrine of representation. That is a true doctrine that is part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God set up with our first father. Our first father was the most competent man that has ever lived on the face of this earth, short of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was given one commandment to keep, and he did not keep that commandment. And he cast all of us under the condemnation of God. And so death reigned from that moment on. Because the Lord had told Adam, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam died spiritually that day. He died physically 930 years later. And every one of us are born dead spiritually, and we die physically about 70 years later. And by one man's obedience were we made righteous. That is what we rest on. Because we're preserved in Jesus Christ. That's where our preservation is. It's Jesus Christ's faithfulness and it's God's faithfulness toward Him with the covenant of salvation. It's called the everlasting covenant. When God makes a promise, we're we're saved just like a will. Do you know God has already written out a will? It's described in Romans chapter 9. God has written out His last will and testament. That last will and testament is that all of my children get eternal life. Well, a will and a a last will and testament can only go into force when the man who wrote the will dies. Until a man dies who writes a will, the will is of no consequence. It's just a piece of paper with some nice sounding words on it. But what put the, the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ into force? Jesus came and died. And by his death, that new covenant went into force. In Christ Jesus we're preserved. And called. We are also called. God's call can be the appointment or the ordination of us to eternal life. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, Paul said. It's a stumbling block, 1 Corinthians 1.22. To the Greeks, it's foolishness because it didn't match up with their idea of wisdom. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the preaching of the gospel is to them the power and the wisdom of God. What made all the difference in the world between the way the Greeks, the Jews, and the called received the gospel was something God did, which is referred to as the call. When the Apostle Paul says, I was called to be an apostle, what did he mean? This is comparing Scripture with Scripture. If we go to Romans, and we're not going to go there, if we go to Romans 1.1, Paul says, I was called to be an apostle. If we go to 1 Timothy, he says, I was ordained to be an apostle. If we go to 2 Timothy, he says, I was appointed to be an apostle. Now, by by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can get a Holy Spirit definition of the word called. It means to be ordained or appointed to something. And that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the gospel. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks. But if we understand the call to be God's authoritative change in our life, whereby we're appointed to eternal life, we can understand it. Because Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 says, as many as were ordained, or we could say, as many as were appointed, or we could say, as many as were called to eternal life, believed. Because those are the ones that believed. 
God's call can be the ordination of men to eternal life. Who hath saved us? This is 2 Timothy 1.9. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Our salvation and our calling, our appointment or our ordination to eternal life was based on God's purpose and grace, which was where it, why is it always in Christ Jesus? Because there is no salvation under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always in Him. And it was given us in Him before the world began. I prefer to take this called right here, called to be saints. Because if you go to Romans chapter 1, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll find the Apostle Paul using the same word. And since he has ended up with being preserved in Christ Jesus, and he's not talking about something before that, and this is a little tiny point, that you can look at all the different ways that called is used in the New Testament, then you've got to choose one. I prefer to choose the one that is used in other salutations, called to be saints. We're sanctified by God the Father, we're preserved in Jesus Christ, and what are we to be doing with our lives? And we're called. Called to what? Called to virtue. Called to holiness. Called to peace. Called to eternal glory. And most of all, called to be saints. We're to live sanctified lives. What is a saint? A saint's a holy person. What's a sanctuary? It's a holy place. So when the Bible says we're called to be saints, that means we're called to be holy. We're called to live a holy life. That's the one I prefer because it's used in other salutations. In, in uh, Romans, it's used that way. Romans 1, 7 and 1 Corinthians 1, 2. The Apostle Paul used it in his salutation to those two churches. Let's move on to the second verse. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. This is an inspired salutation. This is a good way of how to address people. This would encourage us always. This is a prayer of blessing. God dispenses mercy. Doesn't the Bible say that in Romans 9.15? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion, which is love, on whom I will have compassion. So God dispenses these things that are described here. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and made peace by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross between him and sinners. What does it mean when we say it? Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. We're asking for God to pour out His mercy and His peace and His love on the recipients. It's a prayer. God grant them greater mercy in their life. We can't add to their salvation. It's already secure. They're already sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ. But we can pray for greater mercy in their life. We can pray for greater peace. We can pray for greater love in their life. We can pray for God to bless them with greater mercy, peace, and love among themselves. We can pray for God to show these things toward them. It's like when the Bible says, give glory to God. We can't add to God's glory. He's already got an infinite amount of it. But we can certainly declare it, talk about it, profess it, and show it to others. That's how we give God glory. We talk about His glory. He's already got it. We don't, we don't increase the intrinsic value of God's glory. And nor do we add to the real mercy, peace, and love that God shows His children, but we call for a blessing for God to show them that. Because God is the dispenser of all three. Beloved, 
when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, where did he tell us about the common salvation, this short 25-verse epistle? But in the first two verses, there is so much mercy and there's so much peace and there's so much love that we could study in the New Testament from that second verse. Did you know that there's five phases to the mercy of God? Do you know there's five phases to the peace of God? There's five phases to the love of God? God set His love on us in eternity. And here we go. Jesus showed His love for us on the cross of Calvary. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of that love to us. And God's going to love us for eternity as His own children. And we hear about the love of God and the preaching of the gospel. And it's part of our conversion. Because the love of Christ constrains us. You can look at each one of those little words in verse 2 and see that they've got multiple phases and they develop whole subjects themselves. But I was told by a loving brother at break time that if I continued on my same pace, it would take me three months to get through the epistle of Jude. He was doing some quick math in his PU, took 25 verses, divided it out, found out that I had spent 60 minutes on one verse. He's a loving brother. And I say all that to tell you that I'm going to pass over verse 2, even though much could be said. Do you know how much can be preached from the mercy of God, the peace of God, and the love of God? Do you know how much more could be said about being called? Let's go to verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered Unto the saints. Very quickly, because our time is short. Contend. The word contend means to fight, it means to argue, it means to oppose, it means to strive. Jude saw a need that this audience that he was writing to, who were, whose eternal salvation was all set, they were sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus and called. But there were false brethren that had crept in among them that were teaching false things, heresies. And he wanted to exhort these brethren that they would stand fast and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. That they would remember that there is only one faith. We sang that in a song today. Did you notice it? Did you know that you were singing Ephesians 4 or 5? One Lord. One faith. One baptism. We sang it. It's scripture. It's one faith. That was delivered once to the saints. The gospel is not being developed. Men aren't coming up with anything new. Nothing new has been discovered about the gospel in 2,000 years. It was delivered one time to the saints. And it was delivered by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one else that can speak authoritatively about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they delivered it to us in writing. That's why we have the New Testament. They put it in writing for us. And it was delivered once. And we do not allow changes to it. We do not allow modifications or inventions. We don't allow it to be watered down. We don't allow it to be diluted. We don't allow it to be twisted. It's been given to us and we're going to hold it fast. And Jude... Jude said, I gave all diligence. I was very concerned about you. And if you read about the apostles, they were always concerned about their hearers. If you read 1 Thessalonians, the first three chapters, you will find the apostle Paul so interested in the spiritual state of the Thessalonians. 
that he sent Timothy because he just had to know how they were doing. And when Timothy came back with a good report, it just blessed him to know that they were standing fast in the gospel. And, and Jude gave this same kind of diligence to write of the common salvation. And he introduced it. But then he went right to another point that, that was his primary point. And that was, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. To exhort somebody is to press them to their duties. That ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The true gospel has been here for 2,000 years. It doesn't change. Men have changed. Men have, teach, men have taught heresies. But the one gospel delivered by the apostles hasn't changed. And we are to earnestly contend for it. Contending is serious fighting for it. There's only one apostolic faith, and we want to fight for it. Look at, look at Nehemiah chapter 13. I want you to see what, what some men have done in the way of contention for the truth's sake. The once delivered faith is the apostolic faith. Do you know what Paul said? Paul said, if any man or an angel from heaven or I preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. If it doesn't match up with Pauline theology... It is heresy. And let that man be accursed. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. As I said before, so say I now again. If an angel from heaven or any other man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The Holy Spirit repeated it twice. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 for emphasis. And we ought to take that emphasis because we have some fighting to do, some contending for the truth against error. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. In those days, this is Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13, 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them. Now, this is going to be some earnest contention. And I contended with them and cursed them. That's Galatians chapter 1. And smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. And he goes on to explain what a horrible sin it was to marry out of the Lord. To marry out of the Lord moved Nehemiah to get so upset he smote them. He cursed them. He pulled off their hair. Because he was a lover of truth. And he wouldn't put up with error. Praise the God of heaven that there were men like Nehemiah in the history of the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for them. There's precious few of them. We could read more in that chapter about Nehemiah. What I'd like to do in the few minutes I've got left, and I've got a race now. I want to remind you that in the New Testament there are chiefly three great heresies. And those great heresies were fought by different men. 
First of all, there's a heresy that the Lord Jesus Christ fought all his ministry. Three and a half years, he continually had to do battle on this one point of doctrine. A large point of doctrine. There's other little side doctrines that we can find in the New Testament, and I'll grant you that. The Apostle Paul had to spend most of his ministry fighting a second heresy, and then Paul wrote Timothy, and Peter wrote us, and Jude wrote us about a third heresy that we're going to have to fight. The third heresy we're going to have to fight is in verse 4. It's men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. That the grace of God allows you to live any way that you wish. And see, we see that clearest in the Arminianism of today. If you've invited Jesus into your heart, then that's all that matters, baby. You can go live any way you want. Because we'll preach you into heaven 60 years from now, even if you've been a drunkard and a blasphemer. Because we'll look back at the Sunday school time in which you invited Jesus into your heart. That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. We teach, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness temperance, and to temperance brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That's how you make your calling and election sure. That's not how you get elect, and that's not how you get called. That's how you make your calling and election sure. That's what we teach about the grace of God. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Titus 2.11. Teaching us that. The true grace of God teaches us that. Denying yourselves an ungodly lust that we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. That's the third heresy. I want to go after two others that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul did battle with. First of all, the Lord. Our poor Lord. Our poor Lord had to deal with the ceremonial ritualism. Ceremonial ritualism. You go to church and go through a format. You go to church and go through a ceremony. You go to the synagogue and go through a ritual. You go to the temple and go through the same old acts over and over again. You're a hypocrite because on the inside, you're full of wickedness. On the outside, you're doing the ritual, so you show people and you pretend to people that you're righteous. He dealt with it his entire life. The Roman Catholic Church is the closest approximation to it in our time. They go into church. They walk past a little basin of water. They sprinkle a little, do the sign of the cross upon themselves. Go in, sit down, kneel down. They stand up, they sit down, they stand up, they sit down according to a ritual. I'm a good Catholic. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm a good Catholic. What did you do to be a good Catholic? I went to Mass. So they went to Mass and had somebody mumble in Latin until the late 1960s. And now it's in English, but for 1,500 years it was in Latin. And they think that they've done something good. The Jews did that. Over and over, Jesus Christ had to deal with it. When he warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, what was he talking about? He tells us their hypocrisy. The doctrine of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. He said, you make the outside all nice and clean, but inside it's filthy. You look like whited sepulchers. You look like a whitewashed sepulcher, but inside are dead men's bones. You lay burdens upon other men's backs that none of you will lift with a finger. You pay tithes of your your herb garden, but you overlook the weightier matters of judgment, mercy, and faith. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? 
You have a missionary program that you compass land and sea to find one more proselyte and you make him more the child of hell than you were. It's a sermon on the mount. It hath been said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've killed. It hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you use the divorce laws to get yourself another woman, you've committed adultery. But I say unto you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. Jesus had to teach against this his entire ministry. They wore the scriptures on their foreheads in little boxes. They strapped them on their arms. They they enlarged the borders of their garment to look holy in public. But they hated the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved their stinking Sabbath day so much, they would condemn Him every time He healed a man on the Sabbath day, even though He would say to them, every one of you would go home and pull out your ass or pull out your ox if he fell into a ditch. Every one of, on the Sabbath day, every one of you would go home and lead your cattle to water on the Sabbath day, but you're going to condemn me for healing a man on the Sabbath? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Is what he said in Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 8, when he was referring to his disciples who had plucked corn on the Sabbath day. They said they're guilty. He said they're guiltless. They're as guiltless as David was when he ate the showbread. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There was nothing special about the Sabbath. It was a rule God gave to give Israel every seventh day to rest for the hard bondage that they put forth in Egypt. That's what the Bible tells us it came from. God gave the Sabbath as a special sign to Moses and his followers for the hard labor that they had paid for in Egypt. The Sabbath was made for man. It was simply to help man out. The Sabbath wasn't special and God made man to worship it. Jesus said that. Mark 2, 27. Because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath also. And he explained that to them. He had to fight this obsession about ceremony and ritual his entire life. Nehushtan is what the Bible says about any ritual or ceremony that you get out of its proper place or out of its proper testament. Our poor Lord... Do you know what he told them? He said, you Jews, let me tell you a parable about a householder. And he told about the householder who went into a far country and he sent his servants to gather the fruits of the vineyard. Do you remember? It's Matthew 21. They abused those servants. So the Lord of the vineyard said, well, they've abused my servants. I'll send my son. Surely they'll honor my son. He sent the son and they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. Jesus got to the end of that and he said, what will that householder do to those men? He'll miserably destroy them. Amen. It says the Pharisees knew that he was talking about them. You know what he said then? The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Do you know what that nation is? It's us. It's the kingdom of God made up of the Gentiles. More More on that in a second. The Lord Jesus, there's three, there's three big heresies in the Bible. Ceremonial ritualism that Jesus had to deal with. The Pharisees would go through these 
extensive. He, you know what Jesus said? The washing of pots and cups and many such like things ye do. I don't have time to teach you verse by verse, Mark 7, 1 through 20. But he said, you get all worked up about the washing of cot, cut, cots and pups. Now that's different, isn't it? Cups and pots. You get all worked up about washing those things. And you omit the weight of your matters of the law. Why are you worried about what you're drinking from? What goes into a man can never defile him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. There is no ceremony or ritual that's going to help you by trying to purify what's going in. It's what comes out. He said, what defiles a man? It's evil thoughts. It's adulteries. It's all the things that come out of the heart of man. That is so true. Drunkenness is not caused by what goes into a man. It's caused by what comes out of a man. And if you're not able to receive that, then you need to work on understanding Jesus' point. Because it's not the stuff that causes drunkenness. It's the evil heart of a man that drinks too much that causes drunkenness. All sin comes from within. Anything that goes in here ends up in the draft. It doesn't pollute a man. It's the heart that would drink too much. Jesus had to fight this his entire life, constantly fussing and and condemning him for healing on the Sabbath, constantly asking him, by what authority do you do these things? Because he hadn't graduated from their formal ceremony, their formal seminary. Ceremonial ritualism. Catholics are known for it. Jesus dealt with it his whole life. He had to say over and over again to his apostles, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And what he meant was beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees. They bind grievous burdens on men's backs, but they will not lift a single one of them with their fingers. They do everything to be seen of men. They have trumpets announcing their gift giving. They appear in public that they're fasting. He said, but I want you to appear in public like you're not fasting, because that's a fast that will be received. And so the Lord had to deal with that heresy. It tells us in Jude 1 and verse 3, Jude wrote and said, It was needful for me to write you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Do you know what Jesus told the woman of Samaria? You don't worship God properly in Samaria, and they don't worship God properly in Jerusalem. Because the Father seeketh such that will worship Him in Spirit. Spirit. And in truth. Spirit. It is an internal religion, not an external religion, of what you can touch, taste, hear, smell, or see. It is an internal religion of spirit. That is a small s, and it means it is a spiritual internal religion that is coming. It is not outward that requires the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus corrected the whole thing and said that heresy is going to be done away with. And bless his name, he tore that temple to shreds in 70 A.D. Not two stones remained attached. The Apostle Paul, our poor brother Paul, do you know what he had to waste his life fighting? He didn't waste his life. But do you know how much time was sucked up fighting this heresy? Jewish legalism. All the book of Galatians, most of the book of Romans... Much of the book of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are spent fighting this heresy. That there is advantage by being related to Abraham. That there is the necessity of keeping circumcision, or the Sabbath, or meats, or drinks, or other Jewish ceremonial laws from the Old Testament 
that were put away. The book of Hebrews. He has to spend the book of Hebrews explaining that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant is far better than everything that Moses ever had. How many chapters could you turn to that have to refer to circumcision because the Apostle Paul was trying to correct the heresies that came up out of Jerusalem that were Jewish fables by Jews that wanted to make sure Gentiles that were being converted to to one God would also be circumcised. Remember what Jesus said about them? I've already quoted it once in Matthew 23, verse... Oh, it's about 27. It says you compass land and sea to make one proselyte. And once you've made him a proselyte, he's two more. He's ten times more the child of hell than he was. That's what these Jews did. What was the council at Jerusalem held for? Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas are preachers, among several others, that were in the church at Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. We still have Syria today. There's still a city called Antioch there. Paul was a member of a church there. Some false teachers came up out of Jerusalem and came into that church and said, You Gentiles, unless you get circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul had been taught with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years in the Arabian desert. He knew that was a lie, but he was sick of that Jerusalem church letting men like that get out and preach. So he took a trip with Barnabas down to Jerusalem, and they had the council of of Jerusalem. It's all of Acts 15. In Acts 15, all the apostles and elders came together to consider the issue. Paul talked about what great things God had done through him among the Gentiles. Peter got up and spoke about going to the house of Cornelius and being the first Gentile conversion. Then James took over who was the leader of that council, and he said, Men and brethren, here's our solution. Turn to it. It is, it is just too precious. This is contending for the truth. This is contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Because he knew what those teachers were bringing out of Jerusalem was wrong. And he wanted it stopped. If, you were, if you've read the book of Romans... Much of the book of Romans is spent trying to combat Jewish legalism. Let me chase down that word legalism. Do you know what it means? If something is legal, then it has to do with the law. That is very good. That is very good. You know, people call us legalists because we try to wear modest clothing on our women. We don't celebrate Christmas. We don't have musical instruments in our assemblies, and they call us legalists. They have no clue what the word means. A legalist is someone who believes you have to keep all or part of the law of Moses in order to be saved. That is a legalist. And what Paul had to fight his whole life was Jewish legalism. False teachers that were trying to maintain some Jewish yoke of bondage upon these Gentile converts. Do you remember what we read in the first service from Galatians chapter 5? Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. You Gentiles, you're free. I freed you by the gospel. Don't let these men put a yoke back upon you. A yoke that you've got to be circumcised. A yoke that you've got to keep the Sabbath. A yoke that you've got to keep the dietary laws. A yoke that you've got to keep the law of Moses. You don't have to keep any of that. The church, the council of Jerusalem sat down with all the apostles and all the elders to consider the matter. They said, Sabbath? No way. The Lord rose on the, and showed himself alive on the first day of the week, and all the Gentile churches meet on the first day of the week. Circumcision? Not a chance. That was a sign that God had with Abraham as a nation only. It doesn't apply to the Gentiles. Well, is there anything that we need to tell these Gentiles they need to do? The Gentile world is given to fornication. Stop fornicating. Let's not fornicate. 
Let's not eat meat strangled. Cut its throat and let it bleed. Let's not eat flesh with the blood. And let's not eat meat offered to idols. Four things. They took Judas, another Judas, and Silas and sent them with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch and said, those men that came out from among us had no authority whatsoever to teach what they did. This is what God the Holy Spirit has given us to tell you. And you know what it says? There was great rejoicing in Antioch when they got that message. But look at Acts 15. Acts 15. James stands up in verse 13 and says, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. James 15, Acts 15, 13, James is speaking in verse 13. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's Cornelius. God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. God is building himself a new nation of Gentiles to replace the nation that he has deserted and left, the nation of the Jews. Just as Matthew 21 told us when the householder said, he will give his vineyard to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Verse 16. No one, I need 15. I skipped it. And to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written, and he quotes a prophecy. After this I will return... And will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Here is James explaining this prophecy that God is going to build the nation of Israel once again, but he's building it out of Gentiles. Men and brethren, Peter just got done telling us how God chose him to be the first one. The apostle Paul's followed him. And now let me tell you by inspiration what the Old Testament prophesied. That I'm going to return after I've deserted my nation of Israel and I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. That's the house of David. It's going to be rebuilt. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and all the rest of us are citizens in this and members of this family. It's fallen down. I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. The nation of Israel hadn't been great for 500 years. When Nebuchadnezzar had raised the city of Jerusalem and ended the nation as any power in the earth. Now notice what he says in verse 17. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Men and brethren, James says, God has known all along what he's going to do. He is going to rebuild the kingdom of Israel with Gentiles. He is going to rebuild the house of David, the tabernacle of David, with Gentiles. And what we have facing us is that very thing being fulfilled in our eyes. Peter started it with Cornelius. Paul's perpetuating it up in the city of Antioch. Now what are we going to do about it? Here's what I suggest. Let's write them and tell them these four things, and that's all they have to do. And the only reason we're going to tell them is for a few years to comfort the Jews who get worried about those four things. Fornication, strangled meat, bloody meat, and meat offered to idols. Because just a few years later, the Apostle Paul wrote churches and said, This and this and this don't matter, but abstain from fornication. There was nothing about the law of Moses. There was nothing about the Sabbath. There was nothing about circumcision. And that was the very point under contention. 
Do you know how much of Romans is, is spent on this subject of Jewish legalism? Do you know that all of Galatians is? If you are circumcised, Christ has made of none effect to you. Did Paul circumcise Titus? Galatians chapter 2. No way. Paul had so much excitement to take Titus into Jerusalem as an uncircumcised man to prove the point that it had nothing to do with salvation. This is earnestly contending for the faith. That's my point. That's why I'm off on, that's why I want to trace down three heresies. Ceremonial ritualism that Jesus had to fight of the Pharisees. Jewish legalism that the Apostle Paul had to fight of the Jews. And carnal Christianity, which we have to fight because God has chosen us to live in the perilous times of the last days. Jude is written to us. Second Peter 2 is written to us. Second Timothy chapter 3, which talks about those perilous times, is written to us. Carnal Christianity of the perilous times. So much more could be said about this Jewish legalism. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. How about this verse? It's from Galatians, and you know I I love it. It, We use it many different ways because it is such a useful verse. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Who's the real seed of Abraham? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 16. You come down to verse 28. There is neither Jew, there's no Greek, there's no barbarian, there's no Scythian. For if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Jesus Christ, all distinction between Jew and Gentile was blown away. And the Apostle Paul, our Apostle, the Apostle to the Gentiles, had an understanding of that above all the other Apostles. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that that mystery had been kept hidden from the secret of, from the beginning of the world, but that thing had been revealed to the Apostle Paul, and he preached it plainly. That by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the distinction between Jew and Gentile was blown out the door. We're all in Christ Jesus, and that's the real seed of Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ, we're heirs according to the promises. What promises do you want to think about? That you're going to be able to defeat all your enemies? The Lord Jesus Christ with his people will trample upon all his enemies. That you're going to get the land of Canaan for a perpetual inheritance? What was the land of Canaan to Abraham? Was it just a type of heaven? Absolutely. He sought for a country and a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're going to inherit that with Abraham. Do you know what heaven is called? The bosom of Abraham. Yeah, Abraham's bosom. That's what heaven is. That's where we're going. And we're going there as Gentiles. Because God has rebuilt, according to Acts 15, this is the council at Jerusalem. This is the weightiest council that could be ever held in church history. All the apostles were there. Pope Benedict XVI wasn't there. Pope John Paul II didn't make it. And Innocent III was gone. But all the apostles and the elders were there and they sat down to consider a matter. What do Gentiles have to do to look like Jews to get saved? And they said, listen, we weren't able to keep the commandments of the law. Verse 10, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
Praise the Lord. These were fair men, weren't they? They were inspired too. That helps. But they were very fair because they were inspired. They weren't inspired because they were fair. But that's what they said. And look at what they said. Look at the role that we have. We are the built-up tabernacle of David. The kingdom of David. The house of David. What David is ruling? The son of David named the Lord Jesus Christ. He is ruling from the throne of heaven, up over heaven and earth. All things that are in heaven and earth that were given to him by God the Father. And God has rebuilt the kingdom of Jews and Gentiles, and only a few Jews, because it's mostly Gentiles. And Paul, being the apostle of the Gentiles, writes most of the New Testament. So much more could be said. Colossians chapter 2, he said, Let no man therefore judge you in respect of meat, drink, Sabbath days, none of that garbage. Why in the world do you want to go back under the rudiments of the world and not be free in Christ? Jesus Christ died and put all those commandments away. Colossians chapter 2. But look at poor Paul. Look at the epistles he wrote. Have you read them? Do you understand the polemic nature of those epistles and how he was arguing for the truth against error over and over? What, how much of the New Testament was spent earnestly contending for the faith? Brethren, when we attack from this pulpit or from the pew or from Proverbs commentaries or any other medium, the carnal Christianity that's in our day, we are trying to fulfill Jude 1.3. Because we are commanded, we are exhorted to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Forty days of purpose have not added to the gospel that was once delivered to the saints. The ecumenical movement has not added one whit to the gospel that was once delivered to the saints. Billy Graham has not added to the gospel that was once delivered to the saints. We go back to the authority of the apostles, Jude being one of them, and we defend what they wrote down for us. And we must earnestly do it. And we must faithfully do it. Jude said it was needful. And verse 4 is going to tell us why. Because there are false brethren that have come in unawares. How they get in unawares? They profess Christ to get in. They get baptized because the churches and ministers of Christ believe all things and hope all things. Then they get on the inside and out come their true colors. They are not committed to the apostolic doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he wrote verse 3, because in verse 4 there's some reprobates that were bringing in errors. And he says they were reprobates, and we will take up the doctrine of reprobation next two weeks from now when I am back with you. So much more could be said, brethren. For, for any of you who have ever run into Seventh-day Adventists, British Israelism, the Worldwide Church of God, Schofieldism, Messianic Jews, and others, they all go down the same path. They think their salvation be related to Abraham physically, figuratively. They think there's value in circumcision. They think there's value in the Sabbath. Have you ever talked to a Seventh-day Adventist? Hey, have you ever really got them down to the mat? They have a hobby horse. It's the Sabbath day. Gentile Christians don't worship on the Sabbath, and they never did. No one before Moses ever worshipped on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a special sign of the Jews, brethren. Right. It's not for us. We worship on the first day of the week. The apostles' meetings were on the first day of the week. 
The churches of Galatia and the churches of Corinth were taught in 1 Corinthians 16 to bring their gifts and set them aside on the first day of the week. Paul said that the Sabbath has been put away. It was just a shadow of things to come. It had no real substance. And our brethren have been worshiping on the first day of the week ever since then. If you ever met a Seventh-day Adventist and tried to argue with them, you know what you're running into? You're running into an Israelite that has Moses' brazen serpent still up on a pole in his church. Do you know what our answer is? Nehushtan! Come on! The brazen serpent was for one thing. You should have melted it down and made little bracelets for all the little girls in Sunday school. You shouldn't have stuck it up and think that it had any healing power left in it. Nehushtan! And so was the Sabbath. We're Gentiles. We have the first day of the week. Why in the world would we want to put a yoke on our necks of anything from that old covenant? We are saved by the everlasting covenant, the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I close with Romans 15. Look at these glorious verses. And you should shout. I wish we were shouting Baptists. Esther, if you can ever help Mark become a shouting Baptist, we'll appreciate it. This is so wonderful. Do you know why it says, great is the mystery of godliness? Do you know what the word great means? Do you want to hear something great? Do you want to hear something wonderful, exciting, valuable? Great is the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh, justified the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. The house of David is being rebuilt with the son of David sitting on his throne forever. We're members of it. And look at Paul. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. Verse 15, Romans 15, 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. Paul was special. That I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Look back at verse 8. What Paul, what Paul said in all that was, God made me special, God poured out His grace upon me, and the things that I tell you certainly came to pass in my life. I actually did these things. Mighty signs and wonders. I made the Gentiles obedient in 20 different nations, and I ended up in the nation of Illyricum, which we would call Yugoslavia. And I did it by mighty words and deeds, and the Gentiles were acceptable to God by my preaching the gospel to them and them believing it. Verse 8 of Romans 15, same chapter. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Jesus was a Jew to Jews. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, this is just quoting from all over the Old Testament. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, 
Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse. This is the Son of God. And he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Poor, our poor Savior, having to fight ceremonial ritualism of the Pharisees. Our poor beloved Paul, having to fight Jewish legalists during his life. But brethren, we have a fight. We have those two, but we also have this fight. Jude's Jude's pressing us to it. Peter presses us to it. And Paul pressed Timothy to it. To oppose carnal Christianity. That is being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That is having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. May God bless us to accept our role. And that we will stand fast in the faith. How many faiths? One faith. Which was once delivered to the saints when it was given from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God to the apostles. And they preached it to the Gentiles. It was believed down in the world. And it's been here for 2,000 years. And we are the remnant of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be a faithful remnant. Amen.